0: there. I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. You're listening to Close Reads, a podcast for the Incurable Reader, on which we are discussing Ivan, uh, One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This is one of two episodes that we're going to do on this, not including the Q&A. Uh, so that today we are going to discuss the second half of One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. Um, there's lots to talk about, but first, Heidi, how are you?
1: I'm doing great. I'm in Florida for a wedding and the weather's perfect and we're having a great time. So I'm really, really happy.
0: Is that so you're like in an Airbnb right now? Is it looking Mm -hmm. over the beach?
1: We can't, it's not quite on the water. We have to walk like two blocks to the beach, but it's really cool little town, seaside Florida. And this is a long awaited wedding for uh, some of our uh, good family friends that are getting married a little bit later in life, found each other. In their middle years, it's just a really happy occasion. So we're nice. really excited.
0: Kid everybody there? Kids there with you?
1: Yeah, that's right. The whole nice. fam.
0: Little, little little family vacay included. Exactly. In that's trip. right.
1: Nice. Yes.
2: Tim, I see you're still in a closet. I'm still in the closet. Yeah. A little baby was just screaming her head off. Yeah. So you so, found a a whole quiet, yeah, a quiet yeah. place with clothes and belts. Yeah. So this,
0: well, I mean, honestly, it's probably like good soundproofing. Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. I mean, and sound, it needs to sound, be because no girl can. She's got yodel. some
2: lungs. You got
0: some lungs. <laughs> well, that's good. That's, uh, you know, it's in, it's, uh, it leaves some complications currently at this time in her life, but in the long run, it's probably a positive. That's yeah, right. Yeah. So, well, we are here to discuss um the second half of this book. Before we do that, though, I want to tell everybody about today's sponsor. Now, this episode is sponsored by a conference. And it's a conference that I don't know if we've ever talked about on this podcast. It's called the Hope Writers Conference. Uh, we actually sold books at it last year. And, and uh, the fun thing is we're going to be back at this conference again next year. So this is a conference that is situated in Bluefield, West Virginia. And it's it's a conference that hopes to equip and encourage you to tell stories of hope. Once a thriving industrial center, Bluefield's own story is one of boom and bust and of slowly rebuilding. And it's a city that embodies the gritty Hope we all long for. So born out of this same impulse, HopeWords calls readers, writers, and thinkers together among her fog-topped mountains for a weekend of imagining the work of new creation. So this spring, deeply this is in April, head to Bluefield, West Virginia. Come meet me there. Come check out the book table that we have and listen to some amazing writers and speakers. People like Esty Smith are going to be speaking, Hannah Anderson, Jackie Hill Perry, Lewis Brogdon, and then also Matali Perkins and Daniel Laeri, who you heard on this podcast. So it's a really great uh, writers uh, roster of writers and, spe- and speakers. Um, and if you're someone who is interested in writing in any form, whether it's poetry or Tim playwriting, or whether you write fiction or whether you write sermons, whatever it is, um, come join this. It's a, I'll tell you from being at this event that it is a, it is just genuinely kind people. So even if you're there by yourself, or you've never been before, you're going to feel welcome. I promise you that. Um, it's a small town in West Virginia that seems like maybe it's it's had its you know its finer days or past, but man, it is a it's a beautiful spot with beautiful people. So if you're interested in a conference like this uh, next year, I highly recommend it. You can go to closereads.hopewordsconference.com to sign up, um, and so you use that link. That helps us out as well. Oh, if you're gonna if you're gonna check it out, but I know space is a little limited, but highly, highly recommend this conference. And and again, you can see like Daniel Naier is gonna be there. You can go meet Daniel Lairi, uh at this conference among other people. So, again, that's closereads.hopewordsconference.com. and that link will be in the show notes of this episode as well. And we'll be talking about it uh, off and on throughout the throughout the fall here on the show. So, um, Tim, if you were to go to this conference. How much would you go around telling people that you actually like kind of know Daniel Nayeri? Like, would you just go around like attached to his hip and be like, "Hey, we're we're like buds, we're friends, we know each other." I would. I'd be like,
2: "Hey, Daniel and I have had, you know, like we have. I have known of him through a Zoom call and a conference. Like, <laughs> for and so long, we're really thick. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, hey, everybody." Yeah, right. And Here's then you guys would look like card. your best
0: friends and then you'd become yeah, and then the next totally. thing you know, you'd be speaking there. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'd but be also, a glommer.
0: That's what right. would happen. I'd be a glommer. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> I know we all know Heidi would be talking would be like they'd be talking about food.
1: Yeah, She'd for be sure. Picking, food and wine. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
0: Well, it's a it's a great conference. So if you're interested, uh, if you're I know that people come from all fifty states. And multiple countries to this conference. it's not a huge conference, but it is it's a it's a really, really great conference. so highly recommend that and thanks to them for sponsoring this episode. okay. now, the kind of conference that you would have if you were at Hope Words is uh, very different than the kind of conferences and uh, living experience that you would have if you were in prison with wow. Shukov and and his 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 pals. You didn't think you could do it, David. But in yeah, K,
1: but that one was unique. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it, unique is the right way. That's like when I say interesting, and you're kind of like, is that a positive thing? Yeah. Unique, how he calls it. So, um, one thing though that the conference and this book might have in common is some of the things that it contemplates, and one of the questions that I wanted to ask you two is what your perspective is. On the way this book introduces themes of well, just to put it simply, God and faith at the end of the book, with very little room to spare, almost as if the denouement is a conversation about faith. I was curious, what do you think like the effect of that is? Why does he do that? What's the purpose of that? Heidi, did you have thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, I do. I I was very moved in reading it this time at how uh Solzhenitsyn reflects on faith uh in the novel through Ivan's observations of Alyashka the Baptist. And sure. and of course I have to ask myself if Alyashka the Baptist is named after Alyasha. Um And the brothers K, yeah, and it seems a clear nod to Dostoevsky there, and a beautiful one, especially because Solzhenitsyn later says that that the hope for Russia is in the Russian is in the Orthodox Church, but he does not give this admirable character. He's not part of that faith. He's a Baptist, and which. Is I think so beautiful and so ecumenical. Like there's such an ecumenical vision from Solzhenitsyn in all of his work, uh, and sure. for for this peasant who you know, Tim, you said last week. I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, you made kind of an offhand comment that I thought was so profound. You said you, by the end of the book, you can we we can discuss whether or not Shukov has a compelling moral inner guidance right mm-hmm. um yeah. Yeah. and 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 that i think that's a very important question uh but i i just really loved how he uh, his inner world is so connected uh, his inner eye the way that he talks about alyoshka um the baptist in the story gives us i think this this um this glimpse into how this character is brought out of himself and his experiences through a through a fellow Christian but it's personal it's not a philosophical or a religious conversion for him as much as it is an admiration for somebody who is who has faith um and is living with the dignity um in in his and uh, in, in the camp because of his spirituality so that was one thing that stood out to me
2: the the fact that they the way that he kind of seeded the presence of Alyoshka throughout the novel, I, thunk, I think was very clever. You know, like it's kind of, we didn't get very much of him, but we got little glimpses of him and the glimpses that we got of him was, this guy's different. There's something different about him. And even at the end, um, Shukov kind of in his own mind is kind of like, man, Alyoshka doesn't get it. He's not accumulating favors. He just kind of does, kind things to, uh, to and without expecting repayment and you're like yeah it's a lot like the beatitudes you know i i thought that it does come in at the end as part of the close of the day and the close of the book but i feel like it didn't come in from midair. it it seemed to me like it was set up very neatly um you mean because like,
0: like structurally or thematically?
2: Because of the glimpses that we get of Alyosha earlier in the book. Got it.
1: Like nothing in this novel is abstract um, or like everything's embodied because that's, that's Ivan Denisovich's vision, right? Like Shukov's vision is that he can only see what's in front of him. He's trying to play by the rules. He's trying to feed his belly. He's trying to stay warm or get warm. He's trying to finish the work. Mm -hmm. Like everything's so concrete and so immediate. I mean, his field of vision is so limited and that's the point. And yet somehow through that, Solzhenitsyn gives us these philosophical and religious contemplations um, that I, I. that's just, that is brilliant how he does that. Like we're looking at Religion, like we're looking at faith through the way that Shukov sees this one person in his immediate field of vision, um, and mm. he's not being converted, right? He's um, there's he doesn't necessarily have some kind of profound abstract spiritual experience um, because everything is just happening to him, and um, in, in such a concrete way, and yet through that we are gazing also at faith. Um, and I just think that's just wonderful.
2: Yeah.
0: Do you think that there's a conclusion that, I don't know if that's the right word. Just go with me. If there's a conclusion that Solzhenitsyn wants us to take away from that final conversation between Alyosha and, and uh, I, Shukov? Like, do you, like, in other words, do you think he seeds that there so that when we come out of the book, we have, we're walking away with like, this is, this is the idea of the book and it's like been imprinted on us?
1: I don't. Do you, Tim?
2: I don't either. Yeah. It, I mean, great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Moving on. If, I mean, we've just gone through 24 hours of subhuman brutality, you know, from the conditions in the system of the work camp. And we encounter Alyoshka an alternative to that kind of regime. Um, and I think to have some sort of a conversion or, oh gosh, yeah, to have some sort of a conversion, I think, would... I think it would feel really saccharine.
1: Agreed. And It'd be a, bad, a sort of... Bad storytelling. Right?
2: But we do kind of catch a vision that Alyoshka might not be as naive as Shukov represents him to be. And he might even have a way of being that's not only admirable, but might be his might be the way that he survives and thrives even in this kind of hell hole. And, and go, I think... Go on. I mean, you were, I guess. Sorry. <laughs> Alyosha is... seems like he's an innocent man, like he's innocent as a dove. And Shukov is as clever as a fox. And we've just seen Shukov make it by being very clever he has made it he's even kind of like in a way he's kind of thriving in this prison camp as much as one can thrive but it's always through this kind of um it's it's an economy of favors and deception and we totally understand the reason why he is accumulating Mm -hmm. favors and practicing deception it's the only way to survive and maybe we get the sense that Alyoshka is unwilling even to do those sorts of things and we're presented with the possibility that gosh even in this demonic hellhole one can actually like embody the the teachings of Jesus not even not just in a meager way but in a real substantive way um but again, to just have Shukov be like, "I believe," you know, sure, sure, sure. Let me That's, convert. We, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that would be really saccharine,
1: right? And we are told. I, I think it's very, very important to the heart of this book that it is one day that is like every other day. Right? It is. It is not yeah. the day. It's a day. It's one day. Right? One among however many thousands of days. Uh, in the life of this man who is one among thousands of Zeks, um, mm-hmm. among millions over the course of the Russian experience, among millions more uh, who suffered in other in other tyrannical regimes across the West. Mm-hmm. And it's very important to this book that this is just one day um but in one day you can have a compelling spiritual deepening and that's cumulative across like over time and i think we do get a sense of that um but that is all pitted against then that limited field of vision that is necessary for survival uh, with on a, in a physical sense, and also kind of that demoralizing dehumanizing experience of being in a camp like this, and both of those things are true. Both of those things are communicated in this one day, mm. which I think is like common human experience and one day we can have we have multiple layers of of development even in our limited daily life when one day just feels like any other day mm.
0: it, I mean. Even if there's not a conversion, though, there's still like a. I mean, Alyosha is presenting a sort of mm-hmm. radical view. Well, a radical view of suffering, I suppose. And ironically, an almost sort of Russian, like Russian Orthodox view of suffering, despite his, you know, rejection of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, like that there is that suffering is to be rejoiced in. And so he presents that at the end of the book, which I th- which I think is a reorientation for the reader. Mm-hmm. Because if he'd said at the beginning of the book, you'd have kind of had that on your mind the whole time, watching out for ways that it can be a sort of, ref- uh, suffering can be beautiful or whatever. But he allows it to be hard <laughs> first. And then at the end, he presents it as sort of a, as something higher about it or something something deeper that suffering can, can offer. So in having Shukov, our main character, our protagonist, sort of bristle at that, if not outright reject it. Through what and this does seem like it's been, to your point, how do you, about it being one day? They've probably had this conversation many times. It feels like they're picking up where they left off at another point, some other evening, in their theological musings together. But in having Alyosha, Alyoshka presents this one view, and then having uh, Shukov bristle at that. What is the, like? What do you think the soldier is doing by doing that? Because we know what his perspective is. And we also know that he was in these camps. He has, you know, he probably he probably uh, has some inner turmoil on on the notion of suffering while he was suffering and afterwards as well. Um, so, so going back to the question of not just Shukov's moral compass, I suppose, but how do we read the book's sort of ultimate perspective on the question of suffering, do you think? How, how do you, you want to yeah. answer that first?
1: Yeah, sure. I think that there's so many layers to the book's contemplation of the problem of suffering. It's not, I don't know that I would say that this book is an outright theodicy, an outright, you know, um, overt um question of like where is God and suffering right um but and for that I think it's the stronger um because it's a book that focuses on the humanity of the protagonist and how he mm. is he's not really a hero right he's just an everyman and he's figured out a way to navigate the camp um to survive uh and 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 even to have good days, um, mm. and and there's multiple reasons for that, and and I do think that the book somehow communicates that Alyosha is a witness of grace, like a a harbinger of grace for Shukov, but that that grace is coming in little bits and pieces, cumulatively over time, rather than in some big conversion moment. At least in this. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, right? Um, and and I think the book's all the more powerful for that um, because the words of Christ that um, that Alyosha quotes are that is Christ's vision of suffering that that is our path suffering is our pathway to the to the kingdom of God and um, and that ecumenical profound spiritual mystical wisdom that's impossible to understand um, without um, uh, the eyes of our heart being open to that. Like, it's clear that Shukov's the eyes of his heart are not quite open to that, but that it's doing those words and Alyosha's witness and example are doing a work on him. Um, And, Mm -hmm. but there's other ways that the book contemplates that. Like For me, one of the most meaningful aspects of the book is how lost he gets in his work. Like I remember mm-hmm. being so surprised by that the first time I read it, because in my mind, like the work day of a work camp is the worst hell of the day. Like that's what I would expect. Like mm-hmm. this, um, that if if I'm imagining myself in a in the gulag, um, I imagine that the hell of the cold and the hell of the work. That's what I would think would be the worst part, um, mm-hmm. and that meal times would be this like comforting part. But it almost seems like the 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 things that i expect to be more of a struggle are easier and the things that i expected to be easier are more of a struggle and like the meal time is so hard for me to get past cuz i just want him to eat i just want i'm like i just i'm like yeah. longing for him to eat <laughs> and wor- worried that he's not going to be able to he's going to get cheated or whatever i feel that so much but like the meaning the meaningful work for him even though the work is supposed to be meaningless it's supposed to degrade him but somehow it ennobles him it's i it, it is so beautiful to me that that like every time i read i've read this book that has like stood out to me that the best part of his day is like when he forgets himself, when he forgets the suffering that he's under, it's because he's doing something, building something, making something. I think that's powerful.
2: It's interesting that you brought up um, a theodicy. Like mm-hmm. like this book isn't a theodicy. I agree. It's not. But it does kind of nudge right into that territory, does it? Right. it? Kinda, it kind of gets right next to it because it's a book about suffering it's a book about an unjust suffering
1: right
2: and that is the whole question behind the theodicy is where is god all-powerful and all good when the unjust suffer um yeah so i don't think it's a theodicy but it's about as it's like the genre in the library system right next to theodicy whatever that is a theoda whatever that is anyway <laughs> right. Um, isn't it interesting that the most interesting part of the book, the most gratifying and swiftly moving part of the book, is the work? Just as you were saying, Heidi. I've not to talk about Cormac McCarthy again, but Cormac McCarthy will oftentimes um, give long passage and uh, about something like um, breaking horses or something like that, and it's not always particularly action packed. But it's just enthralling, the well done description of task work. And it really does resemble I mean, like when we're in a groove at work and the outside world disappears and we're just focusing on the task at hand. That's one of the best parts about human being, being a human being, as far as I'm concerned. It's so satisfying time and space kind of disappear. That little pain in your side that you woke up with in the middle of the night, that disappears also. And it's a little bit, this book took a lot of courage to write this book. There are like risks that he took. Like, okay, I'm going to take my readers and I'm going to voluntarily drop them into a terrible situation in which it's a series of incidents of suffering. And now I'm going to give them something kind of exciting and it's going to be a work day and I'm going to have these guys building a block wall and it's going to be the most satisfying part of the book. And you're like, really? Like, I think a publisher would hear that and be like, no, actually you're not going to do that. That's not, we're not signing up for that. But when you read it, it actually works. It works brilliantly. It's so great. Um, The question that you asked David about suffering is intriguing because I remember hearing the Christian teaching about suffering, like it's something to be embraced and like grace can be made known through suffering. And it sounded a little bit to me, maybe in my youth, or maybe it was actually told this way as a kind of embrace of suffering, like maybe you should go seek it out. And I don't think that's what the teaching is. I think it's much more along the lines of it's an inevitability. There is no such thing as human life without suffering. It's just not going to happen. And so, what ought you do? Well, given that it's going to happen, it's all about the stance that you take with regards to it. And this book provides a really really profound answer to it. Gosh, I love this book so much. It kind of hits all of the notes for me because one of the things that I like the most in any novel is... I really like when something is truthful. We've talked about this. Like I remember David, when we were talking about Cormac McCarthy, the thing that I I think respected the most about him is I absolutely trusted what he was saying. Like I absolutely trusted the description that he was giving about the river in Knoxville or horse breaking in Mexico, that they were true. These were like, as mm-hmm. close as you get to like firsthand accounts and I feel that way about this book. This book, I trusted the author from the first paragraph. And there's one little moment that stuck out to me. Remember when Shukov is, after the workday, going back into the barracks, they're outside the gate, and he's forgotten about this little um, hacksaw bit that he's got in his um, glove and his mitten. And he has one mitten hanging out while he's being frisked, and he's really hoping that the other one doesn't get frisked because he'll be caught and he'll do ten days. It'll be awful. And the guard reaches up and he grabs the loose uh, mitten. And what does the mitten do? It crunches. And you're like, of course it crunches because it's frozen. And mm-hmm. it's just like one of these little things. It it, uh, it just it was such a great it was such a great word. It wasn't. It folded, it squashed, it squeezed. No, it crunched. I was like, yeah, because Solzhenitsyn's actually been here. this is like a firsthand account. And he's
0: really... These are the sensory sensations that stuck with
2: him. Yeah, right.
1: And I think even those little details that you're bringing up from a craft perspective are fabulous. Like, Mm. so fabulous. Um, And I think they even serve the larger question, David, that you brought up about about suffering because this book explores the impact of that place and that life on a human soul. And the human in this case is a specific man, Shukov, who represents, um, He's like I said, he's an everyman. He's not a hero, right? But yeah. he's, um, he's also a very specific man with a wife and a place that he's from and a, a real story and a place in society um and human experiences and all that he's a character he's a person um and so the book gives us this contemplation of suffering on multiple levels of his humanity it is his spiritual his spiritual life that we we were just talking about his work life the fact that he's a bricklayer and so he's good at it and that and and um and the tools that he has uh to the to the impact so there's that aspect of it too and then the camp life and how he is able to kind of navigate whereas that other um mm-hmm. it, other characters um are Better or worse at that than he is, right? and And we meet several characters along those lines. Um so we see him in all of these different aspects of his humanity, um and the impact that this place and this life has on him. um, and then by extension, we ask the question about we ask the questions about ourselves, right? Um what would uh, how how ought I then to suffer? um, how ought i to navigate kind of the numbing experiences of daily life which i know i'm also not a hero i'm just a person right um and i and i think that the book becomes universal in that way um in it but at the same time remains entirely embodied in this man's experience
0: do do you think we are meant to see shukov as heroic
1: no I mean I think that we're we're supposed to see him as a person fighting for his dignity mm-hmm. but no I and I I think that the book de- would derail if he was a heroic character the whole point of it is that he's an ordinary person in this extraordinary circumstance um navigating and enduring and sometimes well and sometimes he actually is degraded by it
2: to be a hero, you, you have to achieve something, it seems like more than survival. You also have to save your wife and babies or, you know, people out of the burning building. I, I mean I think I think this is the way we ordinarily think about heroism. Heroism, yeah. Um and Shukov just survives twenty-four hours, though it does take a heroic effort. So maybe not a hero, but a man Capable of heroic effort. Yeah,
0: I, I would. I would be really curious to hear from the audience. You know, maybe make this a question of the week or something for the audience because I'd love to hear to what degree you think of Shukov as being heroic. Because to your point, Tim, you could say that to survive and to not to not you know there's that one character is it um, who kind of allows himself to sink into the mire of the place and to. To he loses his dignity in a way. I can't remember what his name is. Is it stop. is it the other is it the other Ivan or Yvonne? Um anyway, there's, um, any, there's well, a, anyway,
1: that guy. Yep. There's his name is Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. F-
1: but somebody's yelling. I can't it pronounce like that. it. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah,
0: someone's yelling. Anyway, we're not looking at the list of characters right now, but the point is he allows himself to be degraded. And there's a clear, or he kind of just maybe not allows himself to be degraded. He doesn't maintain his dignity in the same way that. Shukov and Alyosha, some of these other characters too. And so on the one hand, we have Alyosha who is this, and my book does call him Alyosha. Um, He has this like very spiritually oriented mindset that allows him to survive. And then you've got this character who is degraded and and doesn't maintain his dignity. And then you kind of have Shukov sort of in the middle in a way, I think. And I'm there. It does take, as to your point, Tim, some degree of heroic effort and persistence and strength to maintain your dignity, to be clever in the way that he's clever, to to simply survive. But also to Heidi's point, it's about a regular person, and so he's not. This is not a Superman situation. This is not even, you know, a. Uh, it's not even like the Count of Monte Cristo, right? Where he mm-hmm. finds a way to escape and do some heroic deed or, or whatever. Um, so I'd be curious to know as you're reading it, not so much like thinking through it and being, thinking through the definition of heroism and all that. I'm interested in like, what are people's gut responses to this guy? If I can ask, if I can ask the question that way, like, did you find yourself responding to him much in the same way that you might respond to a hero? Like in the way that you admire a hero in a book? Did you find yourself responding to him in the same way? Even though maybe you look at him and you say, okay, sure, he's not a hero. But what's your response to him? Like, how does it compare to a character who we might sometimes point out as a hero? Because um, I found myself, at times, being self-conscious of the way that I was responding to him. And I'm wondering if that's part of what Solzhenitsyn is going for. or is it Self-conscious kind of like, how, David? Like, I found myself thinking that's kind of a heroic thing to do but then being like no mm. no no but he's not a hero. Mm. And so then thinking about is this a book about heroes? Maybe it's not, but also maybe in not being about heroes it by definition is about the notion of heroism. <laughs> like through through like a through not being directly about the thing that it could be about in a different sort of book. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Like yeah. yeah. The absence of calling him a hero or making him into a hero somehow almost Allows us to contemplate the notion of heroism. Mm-hmm. Um, is that going too far from what you're saying, Heidi?
1: No, I think that I mean, I might use I might change the world word hero. Maybe maybe the only quibble I have is I I would think it's more of a contemplation of like honor. He doesn't do anything heroic, like, but he maintains some dignity and some honor. Um because to be heroic would like a, a an example of a heroic action that he could have um he could have committed would would be giving his thick soup to Fetchyakov, even though Fetchikov And, Fetikoff, that, and, and right? it really
0: makes a point of yeah. noting that he yes, doesn't do that. He does
1: not do that, right? Like he um he's he's more like a um if I were to pick a literary archetype, which I think that maybe this what I'm about to do is a giant mistake because it it might be reductionist, but the closest, although not one to one, that's a conversation. Yeah, so. yeah. Literary archetype I would pick would be like a the tricky young man from a fairy tale, right? Like hmm. he is he is able to kind of work the system. That's- like that that's probably to me the closest literary archetype not a hero hmm. but a successful thief you know like aladdin or something like that um and and i think that he would fit into that more than than heroics but he has opportunities to be selfless that he doesn't take but nobody else does either and because that's not the world we're given here there's like the the world that we're given here is this oppressive survival-seeking, the best you can do if, without grace is survive with some kind of dignity and honor intact. And mm-hmm. that I think we have in him, whereas the, a character who's failing at that is Fetyakov, which by the way, that's his name. Um, and Thank everybody you. despises him. Um, but but. Shukov has like a glimmer of compassion on him towards the end of the story, too, when he looks at him and he's like, it's not that he's bad. He's not wicked. He's just debased. Like he And he hasn't figured out how to survive. He's not smart enough or tricky enough for this world. It's breaking him down. Whereas somebody like Shukov is smart enough or wily enough or cunning enough to find a way through it while still maintaining himself and not becoming like his oppressors. And even the oppressors are painted sometimes positively or at least hum- just as human as the Zeks. There's still a connection there. And that I think is what the kind of the fluid nature of those changing relationships and moral standards is one of the things that this book is um succeeds in painting for us, giving us like a completely new society that doesn't follow our rules. And yet the people mm-hmm. are still figuring out how to live in it. Mm-hmm. I'm
0: fascinated by that, that occasion, that that um Solzhenitsyn himself could occasionally drop in some sort of empathy for the, the people yes. who are the, like the, the, the captors even though he himself was their captive, like at some point, like he came out of that with the capacity to still offer some sort of at least empathetic moments that I mean that says a lot about the man. um Tim, were you going to say something, and then I want to go back to this thing about the fairy tale?
2: Well, I was going to riff off the fairy tale. I think that's a really good comparison hmm. uh, Heidi. I think the way In fairy tales, fairy tales though are so um, loaded with symbolic activity, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I noticed about this book is how uh, it's almost completely bereft of symbolic activity. It is all grit and grime all the time. That's what we've got. And I mean, I think we've maybe even struggled to know kind of like what to say about this book because it operates on such a everyday realism level that there's not, unlike a lot of the other books that we discuss in this um, podcast, it's not symbolically rich. And part of me wonders if, of course, it's intentional. I wonder if Solzhenitsyn's goal for that is kind of like, Man, when you're just scraping by, when every move that you make is about, you know, making it for the next 15 minutes without just having the frigid cold air invade your body, you ain't got time for symbols. You know, you just don't have time for symbols. And so to have a kind of world that's wiped clean of them is part of the way that this book burrows us even more so, deeply into this, the scenario that Shukov is living in.
0: I think you're right. But I also think the opposite is true in be- because you're right. If that makes sense. Like, I don't think he has to create symbols in a literary sense because this is like one of those God's grandeur type situations where everything is low. Everything is loaded with meaning and almost everything is symbolic because of how terrible everything is. <laughs> hmm. So everything mi- means that much more because of how how limited it, it, it is in supply. Like the bread means so much because it's barely there's barely any of it. Like his the the the, the little piece of cloth that we would normally say is like that's barely a scarf at all. And he uses that to protect himself against the cold. and that that attains that much more meaning. So I think in a sense, uh, Solzhenitsyn doesn't need to to give us literary symbols or metaphors because the world itself is loaded with symbolism and meaning, not in a way that doesn't draw pick, attention
2: to himself itself I, I would I would quibble with that a little bit because Absolutely. This is like the most meaning packed, like terrain in the world in some ways, Mm -hmm. because survival is there, but it's not meaning through symbol. You know what I mean? And I think that's, I think that's important. There's not, this does not stand for that. That does not stand for this, the way that um, a symbol ties two things together, but that does not mean it's a meaningless world it's it, it, oh my gosh it's like almost like yeah too I agree heavy with laden with meaning yeah I think I agree with that I guess what I'm saying is that
0: in a sense he doesn't he doesn't need to do that because like we because we get the the meaning is there in the individual thing without having to draw attention to it from a literary perspective mm. um, and maybe we're just kind of like slightly talking past each other and how we're using the terms um i agree that it, about the maybe the symbol symbolic is just the wrong for me to say that it's loaded with symbolism is probably just the wrong way of saying it but it is definitely lo- i would say that each individual thing that you would normally point to in a book and say well that's a symbol for something it's a it's a, it's got meaning in it because it's just real life because it's real in yeah, this yeah yeah it's like a it's like a it's like a little taste of of realism like the realism and the meaning go hand in hand. Yeah,
2: I read a book. Sorry, ahead, Heidi. I, no, I want to hear ahead. about um, like the idea of uh, the trickster, maybe in a fairy tale world. But I just want to say this one thing: my one of my favorite books from four years ago that we talked about on the podcast was Lennon's Tune" by David Remnick, and I have a quote where Philip Roth an American author, American novelist, probably died five years ago, was talking about how different Americans view literature as compared to um, Soviet-era Russia. And the quote from Philip Roth is, here in the U.S., nothing is forbidden and literature is meaningless. There, everything is forbidden and literature is meaningful. And that really seems to suit the This book, you know, everything was forbidden in Soviet era Russia. Um, Khrushchev somehow let this pass into the hands of regular readers and they gobbled it up because everything was forbidden. And so literature became so meaningful. And I think, yeah, the world that um, Shukov is living in, everything is forbidden by the guards. Everything is forbidden by the system and everything is meaningful because of it. Doesn't mean it's a fun world to live in, but it's a really, really powerfully meaning meaning-packed world. Hmm. Heidi, go ahead. That, yeah. that good quote.
1: So I was the one who brought up the trickster archetype, but I think it doesn't completely fit. I just think it's the closest. So in in a story for, you know, for listeners who are like, what are we talking about? Think of um those fairy tales like the Seven League boots, you know, like those kind of those kind of stories and the trickster is like the protagonist that, in 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 order to fulfill uh, his purpose in the story or to get what he wants, usually. Um, he has to exhibit some kind of like secret knowledge or great capacity, like special intellect, right? Um, in order to get what he wants and, and he defies convention and breaks all the rules and still manages to get what he wants. And I think that's the closest literary archetype that we have to shook off. But to both of your points, the other thing that this book does is the reason I think that that archetype is only obliquely appropriate anyway, is because first of all, that's the only way to survive in this place. So you're surrounded by, he's also surrounded by tricksters. Like that is required of him. He's not special. Like other people are doing the same thing. And if they fail to do it, like Fetchikov, then they are like the book, he he thinks to himself, Fetchikov is not going to survive. And I think we're supposed to believe him. Like because Fetchikov is failing to figure out how to work the system, he's slow, he's he's going to be jettisoned. Like he'll die in prison. Um, and so in that sense, he's not more special than anybody else this is the only way to get a little bit of extra bread the only way to survive the only way is to curry favor with with the bosses and to try to figure out how to work the system in some way um and the other reason i think that it doesn't completely work is exactly what the two of you are talking about is that the soviet gulag was a place that was intentionally meaning breaking like they did it on purpose they 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 crafted the whole system of these of running these gulags in order to break down these people's humanity. They wanted them to fulfill the work, but every zek is expendable. Nobody, they they want them to die. They want them to do work and then die. So it's there. There isn't any great quest to fulfill. There's Mm -hmm. nothing to want. There's no duty to fulfill. There's, there's and that's on purpose, which is why the best you can hope for is that at the end of the day, as the book closes, Shukov felt pleased with life. As he went to sleep, a lot of good things had happened that day. He hadn't been thrown in the hole. The gang hadn't been dragged off to Satsgorodok. He'd swiped the extra gruel at dinnertime. The foreman had got a good rate for the job. He'd enjoyed working on the wall. He hadn't been caught with the blade at the search point. He'd earned a bit from Tetsar that evening. He'd bought his tobacco and he hadn't gotten, he hadn't taken sick, had got over it. The end of an unclouded day, almost a happy one. And then the all-important final sentence, sentences of the book, right? Just one of the 3,653 days of his sentence from bell to bell. The extra three were for leap years. He's even tabulating the extra three at the end, right? Because that's the days. Like everything is, yeah, it's it's all tiny increments. Like, and and part of being a human is to find yourself in a larger story, as you're saying, Tim. But like in the Gulag, there is no larger story. There's just mm. gruel at dinner time, and that's yeah. it, right? So that there there is no great heroic place for, or trickster even place for these people to fulfill because they're intentionally in a, not, not, a, not a meaningless environment that doesn't exist because there is still transcendence, but an intentionally meaning stripped existence.
0: Hmm. So, the so, so you're on this same train of thought to your point. I got really fascinated by the, the, the question of point of view in this book. Mm-hmm. And like how, how the story is told. Because, you know, it'll slip it into this random, this very strange first person plural sometimes. Um, I think there's like four instances where he stops talking about we. And so I started thinking about it. And then I did a little research on it. And I start, I was trying to figure out which character's point of view that's supposed to be. And then I started thinking about, you know, is this like some sort of, is he kind of playing with the Jane Austen thing that we've talked about, this sort of free indirect direct discourse, like what's going on there? And is it supposed to be Shukov's perspective? But he actively rejects, he says it definitely is not supposed to be Shukov, Solzhenitsyn does, because he says that, that Shukov would not have had the capacity to make right. the observations that, that the narrator does. And so it's, if you, if you you can do a little research on this if you want, but basically he was, actively trying to write in a traditional Russian narrative form called Skaz, S-K-A-Z, which was employed in Russian folk tales. So when you brought this up...
1: Hmm, that's interesting.
0: It, I was like, oh, okay. So that's a really interesting connection that you're making there. And one of the ways, if you Google around the Skaz thing, specifically in this book, there's actually not as much writing about it as I would have thought. But somebody pointed out somewhere that one of the things that this gauze thing is typically done is it's meant to be sort of ghost-like. And it's typical in uh, oral Russian, like the oral tradition of Russian folktales. So the idea that the narrator is like this ghost that's hovering in and out, but then occasionally is like part of the thing is super, it's like allows you a sort of dynamism in your storytelling and your Mm. point of view, but also is sort of creepy. Like if you think about it, 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 it could be you know, someone who's been there but then died or, you know, there's all these different ways he could have played with that. But all he does is sort of allude to it. And that actually is more interesting creatively and offers us a more, um, it offers a greater scope, emotional scope, I think. Hmm. Because sometimes you feel like you're with him and then sometimes you're like, no, he knows too much. But then it sort of like becomes the voice of the camp collectively and that's a really dramatic and um maybe genius choice by him. Um it allows him to to engage with a larger scope of the camp, but also when he wants to, we can be in Shukov's head almost. So in a way, maybe it's you could say, well it's he's playing a little fast and loose with it. But also he's seems to be playing fast and loose with with point narrative point of view within a tradition that is true to like Russian literature um and I think that that creates like a a sort of tension that we can be a part of Hmm. like it it allows us to engage with it in a way that like we can't totally distance ourselves with it because every now and then it's about we which I which I was fascinated by um and I think that's in keeping with kind of what you are saying there Heidi but maybe. Hmm. You do? Would you agree with that? Do you think like... No, that's
1: great. I didn't know that. Um, I didn't
0: until like two like two hours ago.
1: (laughs) But I like that a lot. Um, I did notice that if it was, I I kept trying to figure out point of view too, and thinking, but and thinking, is this Shukov noticing this? Because if so, he seems to have a sophisticated um, understanding of. He seems to know a lot of things. Um, and to be thinking about a lot of things, but it makes much more sense to me that um that he wouldn't be. he would just be his his field of vision would be so immediate it would be what's right in front of him um and so much more consumed with um with his physical necessities. Um and so I like the I like knowing that. I think that that is that clarifies some questions for me about
0: the book I mean, It's one of those things that you could still the books you don't have to know that. For the book to work. But it's it's an interesting... I don't know. It's an interesting... Right. Yeah. And, and I like that it places it within this uh, uh, continuous tradition of Russian literature as well. Like, maybe people... That might be something that if you are Russian and you're hearing it, especially 100 years ago... Well, this wasn't 100 years ago, but, you know, a while... It, well, maybe now too. I don't 90. know. I also talked to, talk to my friend who's Russian, who grew up in Russia, uh, to see what he knows about this story. But if you are if you grew up on Russian fairy tales, do you recognize that sort of narrative voice that it slips in and out of? Um, it's got
1: to. I wonder if that's one of those things that's translated. That's a translation issue. And this is a particularly notoriously, Solzhenitsyn is notoriously difficult to translate into English, even for well, a Russian And so
0: author. when I first saw that, I was thought, oh, maybe that's just, maybe what we're getting here is when it slips in and out of personhood. <laughs> uh, maybe it's... Um, a, tra- a translation issue, but it doesn't seem like it is. It seems like in Russian, he also was started slipping in and out of the I and the we and the he, and right. kind of kind of messing with us a little bit. Tim, was that something that you found to be, like you've read it a couple of times. So maybe this time when you read it, you were like prepared for it, but I was not prepared for it as
2: a novice reader of this book. I certainly noticed it um, this time. I don't know if I noticed it the first time that I read it, but I certainly noticed it this time. And he does it to great effect. And and it does, I, I think it allows him to, the author, to, t- to cast his gaze really wide just for a split second before the shutter kind of closes. Before mm. the shutter goes back to kind of like just a pinpoint microscopic view through the eyes of Shukov.
0: Yeah. Mm. Okay, let's... Let's start wrapping this up. We're going to do our Q&A next week. So if you have questions, please feel free to um, post those on the Q&A thread that is over there on closereads.substack.com. Um, we will answer as many as, as we as we can. Um, Tim, you have any final thoughts? And then we'll let Heidi have final thoughts. And then heidi you really got, wed- got a wedding to go to. Oh, yeah. I'm wow. really curious to our know dinner. what
2: um, readers will think about this when I was describing it to Galen. You know, I said, it's about life in a labor camp in Siberia after world war two. And it's about kind of like just trying to eke out, um, you know, like this day. So you make it to the next day. And she was like, and you think I should read this book? And I was like, yeah, the way that when I say it like that, it doesn't sound very appealing, does it? So anyway, I'm curious to know how readers are going to respond oh, to it. Believe me, I was thinking about this as I was reading it. You were.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and as we were, Considering reading it last year. Heidi, any final thoughts from you?
1: No, I don't think I don't have any final thoughts to add to that. This has been such a delight. I think to, I guess I do. Be, but it's just to piggyback off what you just said, Tim. That so many of these, so this is a book that that it is useful to have a conversation about. Otherwise, it it's actually kind of boring to read if you don't know what you're what the purpose of it is right and I have thoughts on this it's it's a risk on solzhenitsyn's part um and he was understood as having a purpose to it right um but if you just an ordinary reader just like picking out oh this is a famous book should i read it right and so i just think if 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 any of our listeners have been like why are our hosts waxing so eloquently about how this brilliance of this book when it's like a lot of descriptions of bricklaying and um and it's like it's not even it's not even um it's not any kind of like gratuitous descriptions of torture and what you might expect for like a prison um mm-hmm. uh yeah. narrative either um was, it's not very yeah. exciting it's a bit of a grind and the reason is that that that's part of the purpose of the book is to give us a vision of the grind go ahead David
0: no I was just having trouble with that this is my first time reading it um, and, and the question of like the stakes so there's lots of books where we read things that are in depth about something whaling and Moby Dick for example, being one that gets cited a lot or farming in Anna Karenina or something. But you kind of have an eye towards the stakes of the story when you're reading about whaling, for example. Like there is this white whale, (laughs) for example. And so it's in service of that. Here, you kind of know that he's not going to die. He's not going to get out. You're there for a day. And so reading through that, I kept thinking about... In a way, I'll put it in very simple terms. Why am I reading this? you know that's kind of one of the things that I think the book asks you to ask and it goes back to what you're saying like it goes back to the conversations about what we're having and or that we're having. Right. So I if okay. you if you, it, I was just going to say so if you're a reader who felt that way I felt that way too and I, there were times when I felt like I had to push through it to get to the conversation if that makes sense not like I was like this book is terrible why am I reading this but pushing through there's moments when I had to push through because I didn't have the stakes to carry me along through the slow bits, if that makes sense.
1: And I think that that's, to your point, that is what he's doing. Like, this is a world without a story. Mm. And that is the story. Mm. Mm. And that's hard. Like, how how do you find meaning in that, right? That's the obvious next question. Yeah. Mm.
0: Well, you know, I'm going to bring it full circle again and see if I can transition back to what I was talking about at the beginning of this this episode because this is an episode that was brought to you by a conference for people who are interested in telling stories and bringing stories to the world. So we are going to have more conversation on this book next week when we answer your questions. Um, I want to encourage you to check out uh, closereads.hopewordsconference.com because um, that conference, which does take place April 12th and 13th of next year, is for people who are trying to create stories and sometimes uh, stories uh, in the face of great suffering. So I really encourage you to check out check out what they have going on there. Um, past speakers, by the way, have included people like Malcolm Geit, Anne Voskamp, Makoto uh, Fujimura, and Catherine Patterson. So there's just been an amazing number of people there. Catherine Patterson said, I keep raving to everyone about how wonderful Hope is. Outstanding speakers and about the best run conference I have ever been to is what Catherine Patterson uh Said about hope words, so check that out again. The links in the show notes. Um, Heidi, you have a rehearsal dinner to go to. You are yeah. in Florida at the beach. You're on vacation, so thank you for taking vacation time to um, to have this conversation with us. That's no small thing to squeeze into a to an Airbnb, a trip in an Airbnb. So thank you.
1: Well, it's really pretty much the opposite of the life. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, <laughs> and I am not. I'm not blind to that. we live a very beautiful life, and I'm grateful for it.
0: yeah thank you as well for um, creeping into a closet um, and <laughs> my and, pleasure uh, hiding out amongst the uh, sweaters and belts my pleasure So with that for uh, for Heidi White for Tim Mcintosh. I'm David Kern. thanks so much for listening until next time. happy reading.